So why don't we welcome our location pastor, Pastor Timothy George, to the stage today as he brings the word. Thank you, Pastor Tim. All right. We're going to do one of those Jericho roars at the start, all right? So that's when we all just, we, we just give a yell to God. It's like a yell offering. Think about it like an offering, all right? So I'm going to count us down, three, two, one, and then we're all just going to give a roar, all right? Three, two, one. Yeah! Woo! Awesome. Okay, grab a seat. That's what we do to get rid of the last walls. <laughs> all right, here we go. This is a spiritual warfare sermon and service today, okay? So because it's a spiritual warfare sermon, I'm going to say, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? (laughs) Not I? Good. There we go. That's the spirit. The way we do relationships and conflicts and the way that we build our homes, our families, our community, this church, uh, so often um, that goes back to the way that we were raised as kids. I'm not sure if uh, how much counselling you've ever received or done or anything like that, but uh, it's always surprising to me how in life and as you start encountering problems as you get older, they often start compounding and you start talking about things and you realise that little things in your childhood have actually had a very large effect upon you. That like that launching time from when you're a kid and when you're in your parents' home, that like what started off small here, by the time it gets 30 years into the future, the trajectory is actually taking you to a place that you don't want to be. So during today's sermon, we're going to be going back a little bit and we're going to be applying God's truth to three childhood stories with one common villain. The big bad wolf, or as um, this child kind of grammatically ruined the flow, the bad big wolf, which is the title of this sermon. So the first story I want to talk about is the boy who cried wolf. Who knows the story of the boy who cried wolf? Anyone? Feel this. It was written in 1867 by Asip's Fairy Tales. Uh, it's famous. It's about a shepherd boy who was charged with protecting his flock, but he calls out to the town, Wolf! Wolf! And so the town bell is rung, and all the people run to the boy, but when they get there, what they find is no wolf, just a boy. And so they all just return back to their life. And then a second time, Shortly after, the boy calls out, wolf, wolf. This time, those who are closest to the boy, not everybody comes this time, just those that are closest to the boy who genuinely care for him. And so they run there, but again, they find no wolf, just the boy. Suddenly, everyone say suddenly. Suddenly, a wolf, a big, a bad, big wolf suddenly does appear. So a third time, this boy, now with genuine fear, calls, wolf, wolf. Only this time, no one listens. This time, no one comes. And this time, the sheep are gobbled up and that boy is gobbled up. Which is a happy ending if you're a hungry wolf or you don't like naughty boys. So there you go. If you're desperate for a happy ending, that's where it is. So what's the moral to the story? 
pretty easy, this one. Come on. Moral to the story of this tale. Tell the truth. I've got don't lie, but, you know, potato, potato, you know, that's fine. Well, that's a start for the moral, but let's dig a little deeper. Here's the question, here's the twist and the question I want to ask you. That what if the shepherd boy genuinely believed that there was a wolf? How would this story that I just told change for you if we replace the word wolf with emotion? I think it's a little bit more disconcerting when we start looking at the wolf within. Wolf, wolf, I'm offended. Wolf, wolf, you said this, you did that. Wolf, wolf, I feel hurt. Ow! Thank you. <laughs> and it feels, it, it, does, it feels powerful. See, drama is unexpected. Drama is juicy. Drama is addictive. It gets the heart racing. It makes, it, it pierces through the apathy. It makes us feel something. It makes us feel alive. I cry out, I'm offended. And the whole town run, comes running just for little old me. How powerful. I don't know if you've seen this. I see this on social media all the time nowadays. People constantly looking for wolves, looking for the offense, right fighting, pointing out other people's faults. Wolf, wolf, you're a wolf. Feels good. See, when they all come running to us, when we call out wolf, wolf, and they all come running, does it, it feels good because it, it kind of feels like they're proving to us that they love us, that they care about us. And then I think from that point, you start nursing a little addiction to drama, that fleeting thrill of feeling cared for, but it blinds you to the fact that what you're doing, when you do that behavior, when you feel a negative emotion and you decide to process it publicly by yelling out, wolf, wolf, when you have an offense and you publicly declare it like that, what you don't realize is that you're actually abusing the relationships of the people that you're yelling out to. You're burning them out because they're busying themselves, dropping their whole life to come and run to you and your problem. Can you, can you see that? Does that make sense to you? It, that, that behavior actually burns people out. And you start developing a reputation. And then suddenly you can't understand why people stop running to you, why people act so callous and unfeeling towards you. Why everybody has their guards up when they're around you. Why you're ineffective in ministry and people don't listen to your testimony anymore. You try and tell them about Jesus and it falls flat because they've seen something in you, a hypocrisy that doesn't align. And you start thinking, oh, well, those people, they're not being very Christ-like, aren't they? You know, I've got needs here and no one's helping my needs. And so then what do you do? If you're that shepherd boy at that point, and you've burnt all those people out, what's your next move? And especially if you don't know that you're doing this, because the boy doesn't necessarily know, especially if he's feeling those emotions. If the wolf is real for him, he doesn't know. 
So what's his next move? He's, ga he's gained this addiction to drama. He's burnt out all the people he's got. So I'm guessing that his next move is to jump ships. To go to the next town where he doesn't have the reputation. To go to the next job, the next church, the next relationships. And then that way, when he calls wolf, wolf, people will come running again and you can feel loved again. It's the only way he knows how to do relationships. I knew someone in church once that talked about this phenomenon of, of like, he actually, uh, he was actually a bit of a wolf, this guy, <laughs> a real wolf. Um, and he loved going to new churches because he called it flavor of the month. <laughs> he had a word for it. Because when he went to new churches, everybody wants to know you. And nobody knows your history. And nobody knows that you've burnt other people out. No one knows that the baggage that you've got. And he loved that. So he would just jump and jump and jump until he's exhausted it. Then he'd wait a few years and then he'd go through the whole thing again. This is a real thing. We're talking about a fairy tale, but we're talking about real things here. See, the baggage always catches up. And where the first little pup might have been uh, emotional ambivalence, unchecked emotional intensity, this time the real enemy rocks up. When you've burnt all those people out, you've jumped all the towns, you've got your reputation, and now the enemy has you right where he wants you. The real wolf, the bad big wolf, Lucifer, the devourer, actually rocks up now. And this is what he'll say. He'll say, you're a worthless fool. Can't you see all these people hate you? They're all talking behind your back. Can't you see that no one here appreciates you, so why serve? Sure, love Jesus, but hate the church. Lean a little closer. Put your head in my mouth so you can hear better my lies. That's the real wolf, when the real wolf rocks up. And I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but I've heard that voice before. I've had that real wolf rock up for me. The shepherd boy had an important role. He was just a kid, just like we're just kids to God, compared to God, smaller than kids. We're just kids, but we've got an important role. This boy was supposed to protect and supply, protect and supply the entire town. So within the metaphor, I would see that as you and I as children of God, charged with being shepherds of the sheep, and we'll get that to that in a second, that we are to protect our city, MacArthur. We are to protect uh, the people of that we've, God has put in our lives and to feed them spiritually. But instead, this boy got addicted to feelings and behaviors that took him in the exact opposite direction from what God had asked him to do, and he refused to grow up. What this boy allowed to grow inside him was far more dangerous than the wolf. The shepherd, supposed to protect, instead he used his humble position to control and burn people out. The entire town. And as a result, he himself was devoured and the entire town starved. Because the entire town was reliant on him, was trusting him. It's an intense story. So let's bring this closer to home. Jesus has called you and I to be shepherds too. John 21, 16. Feed my sheep. It's very three words. Feed God's sheep. Take care of the people he's entrusted to you. Love people. 
Sheep, it refers to people in your life that you influence. They're the lost and disciples alike. So here's a challenging question we should all ask ourselves. Are you feeding the flock or are you feeding yourself right now in your life? If you're always going through drama, if you're always crying trauma and abuse, if your pain level is always 10, then perhaps you've lost your frame of reference. Perhaps you've been compromised. Perhaps you're too busy looking for wolves instead of feeding the sheep. Now, we, we claw, I love this term feeding as well because it's very contemporary now, this idea of feeding. See, we kind of almost religiously claw at our social media feeds. <laughs> and I think that we like try and, uh, I think sometimes we're so hungry, we try and get spiritually fed on these social media feeds instead of the gospel. And I get it. I think it's a million times more exciting. When you've been feeding sheep for a long time, when you've been looking after sheep every day, basic sheep, and it's a million times more exciting when the wolf actually does rock up. <laughs> so exciting. It's so the thrill of it all. So I get it. Like reading my Bible sometimes feels like eating vegetables, clawing through my social media feed. Oh, it's so light-filled. Everyone's photos are so exciting. Look at all these things people are doing. It's easier to look for the wolf than it is to just keep taking care of those sheep. But the, here's the thing, though, about the world, that the hunger is insatiable. I don't know if you've noticed this about Facebook but, or Instagram, but the feed never stops. This is the whole point about Netflix. It's the whole point about the internet. It just keeps loading. It doesn't want you to stop feeding, consuming, this word consuming is one that is also binding this generation. We talk about consumers all the time. That's what we want. We want consumers. Terrible. That's a word that is over this generation that we have to break. This idea that we need to be fed insatiably. This idea that we are consumers and that we should enjoy that. I always find that when I seek out spiritual meals in those places, I am left hungrier than when I first started. That's what I find. 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Interesting word, endure sound teaching. So it's not, it's not supposed to be necessarily enjoyable. It's a bit like working out. You endure it. It's the vegetables. You endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And of course, there's never been a bigger danger than this because now we have the internet and we have these platforms where everything is at our fingertips. And so whatever your passion is, you don't need to endure anybody that sees things differently to you, has a different idea to you. Your itching ears and your passions, you can create your whole life around people that will just say yes, that will just tell you what you want to hear. And you can blame anybody that doesn't fit in with that narrative. I believe that what he's talking about here is actually resonating a lot in this generation. See, when we talk about uh, the boy that cried wolf, uh, the, why, the reason why we fear the wolf is it's, it's all-consuming hunger. That's as I understand this wolf from the story. I'm scared it's going to eat stuff. It's going to eat the sheep. It's going to eat the boy. I'm scared of its hunger. And no matter how much it gets, it's never enough. 
Likewise, we see in the story of Jesus, we see in the gospel, that when Jesus actually rocked up, when he came to the world to do the shepherding, it was not enough for the world that he came. It was, but we didn't feel like it was. And so we said, we said, it's not enough for you just to live for us, Jesus. We also need you to die for us. And so he did, and Jesus did it. But it's still not enough for most, for a lot of people. Jesus' death, the death of a perfect man, that he lived for us, that he died for us, and it's still not enough. <laughs> because sin's hunger, it's insatiable. It's insatiable. So I say, beware the world's anorexic spirit that would seek to invade our church and publicly demand, feed me, feed me. This word over this generation, feed me, give me more to consume. To this spirit, Jesus answered John 6, 56. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He just finished feeding the 5,000 people with miraculous, the best bread from heaven that ever had. He just finished doing that and then they rock up, they start following him because he's like, hey, this guy's a feeder. <laughs> and so he says, look, I'm going to give you the best meal. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I feel like it's Jesus' equivalent of, um, you know, come at me. <laughs> it's, very, it's a polite equivalent. See, Jesus is the cake we can have and eat it too. Jesus is the meal that can never be consumed. He's the bush that never stops burning, the oil that never stops pouring, the meal that will fill us forevermore. The living bread that just keeps breaking. That's what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000. He thanked God, which is what we do, and then you just keep breaking. Just keep breaking Jesus off and feeding the people you're shepherding. You just keep feeding. The living bread that just keeps breaking, the cure to hunger itself. We need never go hungry. If you are going hungry, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. If we are hungry, because Jesus just keeps giving. Jesus just keeps pouring. You've just got to go to him, that's all. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and before long, you'll find you lose taste for the things of the world. Before long, what you'll find is that your numbed senses will start bursting back to life, will start revitalizing, restoring, resurrecting. Suddenly, you'll be looking at the pig scraps, and you'll be like, I can't believe I ever left my father's house. I can't believe I ever thought that was a meal. I can't believe I ever thought that would fill me. We realize true freedom, true life. We testify to our testimonies, howling out for truth, earning a reputation as the kids that yell out, Jesus! Doesn't it excite you? Not crying wolf. Crying Jesus. Declaring testimony. Letting the treasure of your heart spill from your heart out your mouth. That's where I want, that's where I want the church to be. So we're crying out, Jesus, and in doing so, we're feeding. There's, a, there's, a, there's the, the food that just will fill them forever. We were designed to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And you're a part of that process. You're a shepherd to that process. All right, and that's the boy that cried wolf. Next story. Let's mix it up. 
Three little pigs, time to shift gears. Who likes bacon? <laughs> I, love, I love bacon. It's so good. So you start talking about hunger and you start getting hungry. Even when I'm full, I can still eat bacon, always. And I, I praise God I live in the New Testament because, you know, he, he, he sent that vision to Peter where, the, where all the meats come down from heaven. And it's like, now that's my kind of vision. You know, all the men are like, yeah, that was the invention of the meat lover pizza. You know, they just descend from heaven onto a pizza base. <laughs> but I think I, w- I may have struggled in the Old Testament with the whole, you know, bacon's the unclean meat kind of thing. But anyway, I'm in the New Testament. So I love bacon, but perhaps not as much as the villain from our next tale. It's written by James Hallowell Phillips, 1886, Three Little Pigs. It's a story about three little pigs. And the three little pigs build three little houses, one of straw, one of sticks, and one of bricks. Very good. And these houses are quickly put to the test when who should rock up but the... The bad big wolf. I'm going to keep saying it wrong, then you'll remember it. Okay, and now since we've accepted, in kids' stories, you start accepting things, you know. These pigs can talk. These pigs are sentient. These pigs can build themselves houses somehow. And since you've already accepted that, it shouldn't come as a shock to you that the wolf in the story is also peculiar. The wolf in the story has a superpower that when he blows, a hurricane comes out his wolfy mouth. And he uses this power to huff and puff and blow their houses in one by one, starting with the straw, then to the sticks. And lastly, he arrives at the brick house, but he is infuriated to find that he cannot blow the brick house in. So what's his next move? (laughs) The chimney. It's like the door's locked, the windows are unbreakable glass, doesn't work against the thing. Um, And so he scales up to the top and he starts trying to come down, squeeze down the chimney. But those wise little piggies, they stoke their fire. And thus, the wolf's burning desire for bacon had him go out in a blaze of glory. That's the moral to the story. So what's the moral to the story? Don't go down the chimney. Mm, pretty good for the wolf, yeah. What about um, for the pigs? What's their moral? Build your house strong. Very good. All right, let's dig a bit deeper for the diamonds, though. This one's, you're going to have to, this one I'm, I'm looking for wisdom, all right? So go with me. What if the wolf is just a puppet to the wind? to the wind that he blows, to that superpower he has, the wind he blows. All right. What if I told you that these pigs had families? Cute little pink little piggies. And that if the wolf hadn't blown down their houses, that those ones that built their houses a bit shonky with the straw and with the sticks, that they would actually, that their kids have grown up in that home and that have actually have hurt themselves, you know, it have fallen down on them and, you know, they'd never have learnt to build it properly and then they'll grow up and they'll make an even shonkier house and then over time, down the generations, eventually they'll lose their sentience altogether and they'll just end up wallowing in the mud. Would that change the story for you? 
What if like the prodigal son in Luke 15 who squandered his good father's inheritance only to end up living with the pigs, wishing he could eat like a pig? What if it is only through the testing of our foundations that we will wake up and learn to value the principles of how to build a solid home and family? What if Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work to, together for good to those who love him? Matthew 7.25, and the rain fell and the floods came up and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. James 1.3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness immovability. So let me ask you this. What is your home built on? And while you're thinking about that, I would take that a step further and I'd ask you, what knocks you over? What puts a stop to your good day? What puts a stop to your passion and your drive to do what Jesus asks you to do? Because that's likely to be the foundation. Some things we try to build, they don't deserve to stand. The straw and the stick house, they probably didn't deserve to stand, especially with the families at, at stake. But don't dismay, because God is testing and refining us. Where Satan intended to destroy your home, I don't even have to look to the Bible for that. I know that Satan intends to destroy your home because that's just the kind of bad he is. But where he intended to destroy your home, God is going to strengthen it. He is going to frustrate the enemy's plans and he's going to reveal his glory through it. He works all things together for your good. Almost fell off the stage. I was like, come on. He works all things together for your good. Where Satan intended to destroy, if you'll just turn to Jesus in that moment, he's going to work it together for your good. He's going to save your marriage. He's going to save your home. He's going to save whatever it is that needs saving when you rest in him. And let's get, because that's coming up. The wind of the Spirit. We sung about it in worship. I love that. The wind of the Spirit, it created the universe. It recreated the world after the great flood. It parted the sea in Exodus, a wind. It says a wind was released from heaven. It parted the sea in our Exodus from slavery. It led and fed us in the desert. It whispers to the hidden places. It roars down from heaven. It fills us with the Holy Spirit. The wind of the Spirit. Yes, so yes, in the wake of God's glory... A good comparison for my life would probably be a pig trying to build a home out of straw. It's probably a very apt metaphor compared to the glory of God. But I just, I'm so thankful. I am so thankful that God sent His holy wind to shake my foundation and to knock my house down. Because of that, I was forced to have to run to someone whose home doesn't get knocked down. I was forced to have to run to Jesus himself. An unshakable foundation. 
my salvation, forced to run to Him and not only to have that unshakable foundation, but an unshakable cornerstone because He doesn't want us just to stay at rock bottom. He doesn't want us to just stay at ground zero. He wants to build us up. (laughs) He wants us to have a home. And so now, because of him and because, I've, I, because to go through that door, I, I gave it all to him and I said, let me in and I want to be your disciple. Teach me how to build a home like this because I'm tired of my home getting knocked down. And so suddenly when I'm in there and I'm building everything, it's around not only the foundation of Jesus, but the cornerstone of Jesus. So that though my childhood may have had me askew down here and way off up here, suddenly I'm back to that cornerstone. That unshakable, that straight and narrow, that right and true. And then suddenly again, I'm saying suddenly a lot, like Mark from the gospel, suddenly, all of a sudden. And then suddenly that wind that knocked me down and don't scare me no more. I delight in it. I love that wind. I thank that wind. I bless that wind. You know, I put my sail up and I say, let's go. My passion is restored. And that wind is the wind that, you know, it says in him we live and breathe and move and have our being. It says that God breathed his breath of life into us, his rock, his spirit. So when I breathe and when I praise God, I'm doing that with his wind. And, and here's a word I just really felt was over today is just there. Wait, I want to make sure I say it right. Here we go. Let loose and roar. That's what I feel like we're going to do with that wind. We breathe it in. And we let loose and roar. And I saw it last week. And I saw it at the end of worship when it was just like, we just had to get there. And there was just this anticipation in the place and we just let loose and we just roared. And I saw it on the prayer line when Abby didn't take no for an answer. And she was desperate for the Holy Spirit, a taste of it. And she let loose and she roared audibly. I'm not saying this, I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to embarrass you. I'm saying I'm holding that up because that is an attitude that I believe is worthy of respect. I want to honour that because that's the place we've got to be. It's tangible things. It's a a roar that unleashes a violent wind from heaven. It's a roar that we did at the start of the service to knock down the walls. It refuses to take no for an answer. It brings life where there was deadness. I love that end scene in The Lion King. You know, he does the roar and the life returns. Huffs and puffs and tests all things through the Spirit. You can do that too. You don't need God to just blow down your life. You can actually start partnering in the process. You can huff and puff and you can apply the Spirit in your own life to test and see if your thoughts and your emotions are good or bad. Do they survive the test of that wind of the Spirit? Not everything we build deserves to stand. We're just men. And so when we can do that, when we can test all things, The reputation of the Christian will no longer be weak, narrow-minded, prone to gullibility and conspiracy theories, because we will be stoking the fire 
the wind and the fire. We will be stoking the fire till it gets to such a temperature that no invader dare approach. The wolf gets burnt buns on the way down. (laughs) Stoke that fire. All right. Last story, Little Red Riding Hood. Still got a little bit of time. Little Red Riding Hood, written by Charles Perrault, 1697. It's actually the oldest story in the lot. A little girl takes a basket of goodies to her sickly grandmother in the woods, only to find that when she enters the home, that there is an imposter in her grandmother's place. Guess who? Bad, big, bad wolf. And so little, little red, she says, oh, granny. <laughs> I feel like an imposter doing that voice. <laughs> oh, granny, what big eyes you have, granny. <laughs> All the better to see you with me, dear. And, uh, what big hands you have, Granny? All the better to embrace you with, my dear. <laughs> what a big mouth you have, Granny. All the better to go you up with, my dear. Yeah, you know the story. <laughs> I bet you never thought you'd get some Sunday school lessons in here today. <laughs> And the moral to the story is, this one's a harder moral. Moral to the story? Well, no one's, no one's going for it. Have a guess. Just throw it out there. Recognize the enemy. Very good. Very good. I thought it might be uh, don't talk to strangers. That's one I went to. And then I went to trust your instincts. None of it's like, right. That's good. Recognize the enemy is good. I had not everyone is as they appear which is probably a bit more, bit more, yeah, deception, exactly. That's another theme of today, deception. So you go over to see Granny or you go over to see one of your friends, any one of your relationships. It's just a story. But instead, when you get there to see them, you're all excited to see a friend. You're all excited to help out or whatever. But what you find when you get there is in the place of your friend, it doesn't feel like it's your friend anymore. There's a weird version of that person. It's not the person you knew and loved. Have you had this before? This is some real stuff. I've personally experienced this. People I never thought would end up where they ended up. And I find, I go to see them and I find a weird version of them. A monster. And in that moment, you can see something's eating them up. Something's not right. Something's eating them up. And so you try and bring it up in, you know, polite ways and you get your head bitten off. That's a good expression, isn't it? Uh, I want to tell you in this moment, church, pray for discernment. That's a word. Discern is a great word. Pray for an increased gifting in this church of discernment, spiritual discernment. Because what you're most likely dealing with in that moment is a demonic influence. 
You know, we've been talking about all these wolves and I've kept it light and we use this word enemy. These are all church words. But the reality is when we talk about monsters, we talk about demons. And when we talk about demons, we talk about a lot of demons. Like the, the Bible compares the amount of angels to that of the stars. The word stars and angels in the scriptures are actually interchangeable. So how many stars are in the sky? Now, one third of the angels, when Satan did the wrong thing, when he disobeyed God and he fell from heaven, one third of the angels fell down only. They're not called angels anymore. They became monsters. They became devourers, deceivers. They're called demons. One third of the amount of stars in the sky fell. It's a lot. So when some people are like, oh, you're getting a bit super spiritual around the demonic stuff. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of demons. There's enough to cause havoc. And so what we're talking about in this story is a demonic influence. And at, at this time, sometimes it feels like all that's left of your friends. And this is an image that I had after I went to see a close friend of mine once. I, I felt like all I could see was, you know, the eyes peering out from those clamped jaws of the wolf. That little voice from the gut, from the belly calling out and I'm trying to encourage my friend and I'm trying to say to him, hold on, hold on, help's coming. There is help in this situation. But it's an intense image. And, uh, and I get so mad at the enemy and the sin that would do that to us, that seeks to imprison us in that way. And I just want to, I just want to scream out, let my people go. This is an exodus thing. Against that spirit of slavery and entrapment, entitlement that needs to be served. Let my people go. And sometimes I'm mad at the people too. Because sometimes I want to scream out and I want to say, there's no such thing as wolf couture. Sometimes I feel like there's this new kind of designer Christian that has on the wolf fur coat and they're like, you know what, I can do this church thing and I can do the world thing. And they've got on their wolf couture jacket and they're like, isn't this really trendy? And it's like, you're just plain old gobbled. You're not fooling anyone. You're just enjoying your own demise. Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And again, I want to get us digging deeper here. It's DNM time. Why are the wolves wearing sheep's clothing? They are. But here's the thing that God always keeps reminding me of, is that those who are deceived, deceive. I think that not every wolf knows it's a wolf. But some of these wolves put on their sheep's clothes and they go to the mirror and they take a look in and they're like, I'm a good little sheep. And so all of us meek and mild lambs, all of us lambs here, we should be, that should challenge us. That should interrogate us. We should say, maybe I'm not as innocent as what I think. That's what that does to me when I think like that. Which is a good thought. It's a healthy thought. I believe the average person is far less self-aware and far more delusional than what they'll ever allow themselves to admit. And surely we can all agree on this, that for even the most self-aware 
person in the room and we can argue about who that is later. But even for that person, compared to the creator of that person, compared to the all-seeing God of the universe, that you would have a tip of the iceberg perspective on who you actually are. Can we agree on that? Yes. Good. So reflexively, I believe that false prophets are more common maybe than what we think, more common than what we would like to believe. Otherwise, I wouldn't mention it in the Bible if they're so rare. See, a person who acts on their own feelings instead of God's direction, person who feels something, perceives it to be the, doesn't discern it, that it's them, discerns that it's God, calls their feeling God, that's a false prophet. They're calling their feeling God. A person who leans on their own understanding instead of faith. Very easy to do in a church to start trying to drill down on being a good person. We lean on what we know, what we judge to be good. We lean on that instead of stepping out in faith into the unknown. That's also a false prophet. A false prophet refuses to call out sin for fear of offending. Especially things like in today's society, there's so much silencing of the church around things like sexuality, things like abortion, things like greed, and perhaps most contentious of all, things like physical health. That's one that really offends people. So shall we tiptoe around the things that are uncomfortable? Or shall we stop splitting hairs? Shall we start trimming back? And shall we start growing healthy again? A healthy church. I don't want to be a false prophet. Truth holds everything up. It holds everything together. And if you need proof for the fact that truth holds everything up and together, then God called truth what in his armor? What's truth in God's armor? The belt. Why do we wear a belt? (laughs) To hold up your pants. So what happens to the church when we take that belt off? Shame. That's right. Although we won't allow ourselves to feel shame. No, we could never feel shame. No way. So then we have to start silencing people. You can't talk about this. You can talk about that. You can't talk about this. Can't let people see that I'm actually nude. I'm not actually talking about what God has asked me to, that I'm not actually upholding the things that I say I'm upholding. When we take off that belt, we start tripping over the lies. We start getting caught with our pants down. That's just the reality. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, not some, all. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only to what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. That's no false prophet. That's a true prophet. It is with this spirit and only through this spirit that we may discern truth. We may discern mystery and we can cast out those demons that are torturing the people we're shepherding. Now I'm wrapping up here. The Hebrew word for truth is emet. The root of this word is amen, which literally means support. Thus a belief in God is not a mental exercise of knowing God. It is a support for God. I love Jesus' 
very vulnerable question in Matthew 16, 15. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Forget all the other people in your life. Who do you say Jesus is? What about you? It's a vulnerable question. Jesus was so often misunderstood. We're talking here about the wolf that was dressed as a grandmother. It's just a bit weird. But for Jesus, that's actually pretty weird too. There's a lamb of God dressed in, veiled in human flesh. And when people looked at Jesus, they saw just, so many people saw just a man. And worse still, they saw a homeless man, a man of no status, a man of no means, a man of bad friendships. And yet we know that he's the Lamb of God. It requires discernment. You are here today because you've crossed that bridge of discernment. You discerned that Jesus is of value. And we need to keep discerning. It doesn't stop there. We need to keep discerning. I want us, see, Jesus doesn't want to judge you. A lot of people are scared of approaching the church because they're like, I don't want to feel judged. I don't want to be called a sinner. Jesus doesn't want to judge you. He wants to free you. It's to pry open the wolf's mouth. Give you a new kind of coat. There you have it. Three stories, one villain. In the wolf's desperation to devour, he will attack. He'll attack you. He'll attack your home. He'll attack your community. However, that through your testimony, your testimony, your foundation and discernment, we can defend our relationships. We can defend our homes and we can defend our faith. This is spiritual warfare. That's what I said. That's where we are. Furthermore, Jesus, he will turn the enemy's curse into a blessing. He will turn the enemy's attack into the church's resilience, into your resilience. See, don't be fooled by the apparent innocence of these stories. You know, I've used the stories as a vehicle and hopefully you'll never see those stories the same again. But in that, we are waging warfare against deception. When deception makes its way into the church, the worshippers of the truth, deception seats itself on God's throne. And if it works its way into the church, we're worshipping the wrong thing. See, so today we're firmly buckling our belt of truth. I'll get you to stand to your feet. Today we are firmly buckling the belt of truth. We are letting loose and we are roaring. We are humbly asking God to unleash a spirit of truth. Now, there'll be a little ministry line at the end, but it's for those people who are feeling spiritually under attack. It is a spiritual warfare sermon. We're going to be singing now a song of praise and victory. And so if you have been fighting it out, if you know all too well that wolf and you know all too well the things that are seeking to devour you, then our prayer team is going to come up and we are going to support you and we are going to equip you and we're going to encourage you so that you can keep fighting the good fight. Sound good? All right, bless you. Let's praise God.